Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. Well, like I said, we are continuing in a series this morning, um, and uh, we've been going through this book, and one of the things that we've noticed about this book, if you've been around at all, is that one of the things that um, it does is it kind of sets you up for failure almost. Um, it tries to disguise things. We've nicknamed the series Unusual Suspects, because what it does is it constantly builds up your hopes to expect one thing out of a person only to get you to arrive at something else. So the book begins, if you remember, maybe you haven't been here, this will be a kind of a refresher that will help you kind of keep track of where we are today. We begin the book by seeing this woman who appears to be a drunkard. She appears to be almost this evil person, but one of the things that we see is that you should not trust the first appearance of your eyes. She is a righteous woman. She's, She's praying so hard that the priest in the temple mistakes her as a drunk woman. We see her name is Hannah. She's praying desperately for a baby, and the Lord actually grants her a baby, a baby boy. His name is Samuel, whose the book is, ironically, named after. But after that, it doesn't just start right there. We later introduce them to two priests, all right? These priests, they look godly. The only problem is they're not at all. That appearances, again, once again, betray you in this book. We see that they're sleeping with women in the tent, people who aren't their wife. No way. So in some ways, they are kind of a picture of all Israel and what Israel is going through and the disobedience that still is Israel. But we see out of this time that God is intent on bringing about change to his people. But here's one of the big problems we've seen in the book so far. Instead of God changing them slowly, one of the things is the people say, we want something right now. We want something that we think will bring change. And they're like, we want a king. And God was like, well, okay, I planned on giving you that to begin with, but they're like, no, we want it now. So, as you can imagine, he says, okay, I'll pick out a king for you, and I'll pick out a king just like you're asking for. So we see this guy. He's picked. His name's Saul. He's a beautiful dude. Like, some of you ladies, you'd, like, fawn over him. Oh, like, he's so cute. He's tall. He's handsome. Like, the most handsome guy in all of Israel. But we begin to see a real problem. Is that Saul appears to be a coward to begin with. Whenever he's called to be king, he's actually hiding in the baggage claim with everybody's baggage because he's so afraid of maybe what kingship would actually look like for him. But last time we talked, we saw that, hey, there was some hope because he gave the appearance of maybe being a little bit brave. He won some battles. But now we're introduced today... All right, to another story in the book. So we're in 1 Samuel, like I said, 1 Samuel 13. We're going to have three points today. If you are a note taker, this might be very helpful for you. If you're not, that's totally fine. But if you are a note taker, our three points are going to be this. A godly life must wait. Point number two, a godly life must approach God on his own terms. Again, point one, a godly life must wait. Two, a godly life must approach God on his own terms. And number three, a godly life cannot be truly godly without God's word. A godly life may not truly be godly without God's word. Let's read. Let's dive in. All right, we're going to read in verse one. Here we go. We're going to go from verse one to verse eight. It says this, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel... Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan. That is Saul's son, by the way. They were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his own tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison. If you don't know what a garrison is, think of like a fortress, by the way. So Jonathan comes in. Jonathan defeats the fortress, the garrison of the Philistines that was at Gibeah. And the Philistines heard of it, Uh uh-oh. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it. They heard it and said, 
that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal, and the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan and the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the appointed time, by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gogal, and the people were scattering from him. (laughs) Interesting way to pick up where we are this week, isn't it? All of a sudden we see Saul appears brave, and now one of the things, the first thing that we're picked up on is dropping into the story. He's got 3,000 troops. You might not have a military background, all right? 3,000 troops may be a particularly large amount of people that we read. So he splits up his forces. He takes 2,000. He sends 1,000 with his son, Jonathan. All right. And what they do is they end up, Jonathan conquers one of the fortresses of the Philistines. One of the things you're thinking, you're like, are they just going out like wrecking people's day? No. The Philistines were their neighbors to the west. Super violent people, super dangerous people. So they were actually invading Israel. So one of the things Saul does is like, all right, let's knock out some of these fortresses. Let's push them back. Boom. We're going to be good. So everything appears right. They knock out a fortress. They got 3,000 men. Did you notice what happened next? Look down at verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. It's interesting, if you are someone who's not super comfortable with reading your Old Testament, this is something that's going to be particularly helpful for you. So if you have a car, let me ask you this. So let's just pretend you guys, like you all drove here today, mostly I'm guessing nobody maybe took a bike, nobody probably walked here, most of you probably drove here. All right. So let me ask you, would you buy a car if it would not go in reverse? Think about it. Would you? Most likely not, because if you ever got into a corner... You probably would have to sell the car because it couldn't move. All right. You see that, right? So your car naturally has to be able to move forward and backwards, right? In the same way, when you are reading the Old Testament, one of the things that you have to do is you cannot, for instance, you and I, we can't read that like we do a book, like bum, 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 up and down, up and down, up and down, next page, next page, next page. One of the things that we have to do is we have to be able to sometimes back up. So we see, all of a sudden, what? They muster 30,000 troops. Pause. If you reverse that engine and go backwards, let me ask you, how many troops did Israel have? Do you remember? 3,000. Now, all of us are not math people here today. I was not super strong at math. That's okay. All right? My life has turned out okay. So if you are not maybe particularly strong at math, right? Or maybe you are this morning. Let me ask you, how far are they outnumbered? Can you do the math? They're outnumbered significantly right here. Probably around 1 to 12. So let me ask you, if you were in a war and you were fighting and you were outnumbered 1 to 12, what would you probably do? I will tell you, Probably what some of you would do. Look at verse 8. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble. Oh yeah, they were in trouble all right. For the people were hard pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and holes and rocks and tombs. That's right, in tombs. They straight up dug up tombs, hopped in the crypt and closed the door. They knew something was wrong. They are waving. The white flag. And all of a sudden, what happens in the story? Did you notice? All of a sudden, all the attention, it turns to our king, to Saul. Verse 8, what does it say? He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gogal, and the people 
were scattering from him. One of the things that we see is that apparently he was waiting for further instruction from the Lord. And Samuel was going to bring it. Samuel said, hey, I'll be there within seven days. All right. It's probably around maybe noon on the seventh day. And he just concludes, okay, man, is Samuel going to come? Is he going to be here? So he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting. And here's the thing. You could probably identify with this guy. Like he's been waiting. All he sees is the enemy forces coming and coming and coming and coming. He sees his people. His people are starting to scatter. They're starting to leave him. He does not have 3,000 troops anymore. So instead of being outnumbered 12 to 1, it is increasingly a more ratio by the day. We might think this is strange. It's interesting. I mean, if you even think about the way that we operate in our own lives. When we have to wait for particular things, let's say that you have a particular prayer that you are praying to the Lord. And you are having to wait. It's interesting because if you are anything like me, you think that that waiting process is actually kind of strange. You you and I, we naturally think, well, this should be coming any day now. Like, come on, like, like, what's the deal with this wait? We think that that is something weird. But as with this text in the Bible, one of the things that we begin to see throughout the entire Bible is God's mode of transforming you and I. His pretty much, I would say, his number one or number two tool in doing that. Do you want to take a guess at what that is? It is waiting. Which is awfully ironic. I mean, he's waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And it made me think this week. Think about all the ways that you and I view waiting in our lives. We often very much misunderstand it. Maybe some of us, you're praying and you're praying and you're praying for maybe this thing to happen. Maybe it's that you would find a spouse. Maybe it's that maybe the Lord would take away like this reproach that you have. Maybe is it that you could finally have kids. Maybe it's that you could finally get this job and end this other silly, quote, silly job that you're doing. And many of us, one of the things that we do, we view waiting as if God is somehow displeased with us. So therefore, what he's doing is he is punishing us, right? By making us wait. Or maybe even a more common one. If you think about it, you start waiting. God stops and say, No, he's saying no to your prayer, no to your prayer, no to your prayer. Not yet, not yet, not yet. He's making you wait. And you conclude, this must be be because of some past sin that I have done. So what you do is you start the film going from your past life. Is this because, like, I had premarital sex? Is this because I tripped out on LSD whenever I was 16? Is this because, is this because, is this because? And you're playing these things in your mind over and over again. Which is interesting because God's number one, number two way to change you. We begin to start thinking, he's not maybe changing me. What he's doing here is he's punishing me. Which is so interesting because one of the things that we begin to see in the Bible. Is that God does not operate like that with us. This is why, for instance, the life and obedience, the particular obedience of Jesus Christ is important. Here's why this is important. Jesus Christ walked a perfect life. He walked and did everything that he was designed and made to do or designed to do. He did everything. He lived the perfect life that you should have. Now, here's the thing. When you were saved, when you repented of your sins, here's what this means. His life became yours. His life, his obedience, his spotless record becomes yours. Here's what this means. This means when you are in a season of waiting and you're like, Lord, is this because, is this because, is this because of the things that I'm, is this because you are radically displeased for me? One of the things that you can preach to yourself in that day is that is not true. How do I know that is not true? Because God is always dealing with me. 
not based on my past, but based on Jesus Christ's past. He is never dealing with you based on the things that you have done in the past. He is always, if you are in Jesus Christ, he is always dealing with you based on what Jesus Christ has done. Here's what this means. The moments that you have to wait in life are not because he is out to get you and he is out all retribution on your butt. That's not why. The waiting, the seasons, the long seasons of waiting are there because he is out to transform and change you. One other way I thought this week that we maybe misunderstand waiting. We begin to think when we're waiting that life is unfair. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's unfair that she has a husband, but I don't. That he has a wife, but I don't. That she can give birth and I can't. That that he has this job and I don't. That they have this nice house and I don't. Like, you see this, right? That in many ways, our seasons of waiting, they become this root of bitterness, And instead of changing us, instead of using the tool that God gave to change us, we actually dig deeper down into our sin. Envying our brothers and sisters, maybe because what they have and maybe is not what you have. I was thinking about it this week. And if you think about this. So God, we see, he is, he is, he controls all of history. Like he, he, he totally, like that's one of the Bible's claims that he does this. Here's one of the things that this means. This means that he deals with me in exactly the best ways that there possibly could be. He deals with you and he has given you what he's given you and withheld from you what he's get, what withheld from you. Because what he's doing in you is the best of all possible things to bring about a transformation and a change in you. And you know what? I've totally seen this in my life. There are things that other people have that I desire and I do not, I do not have. You can identify with that, can't you? There are things that other people have that you do not. But over time, one of the things that God does through the seasons of waiting is he begins to build up a gratitude in us that can now rejoice even in our lack of things that we would desire that other people have. My friend, does that sound like something that you would want? As we grow in Christ, as we grow in maturity, in some ways, instead of what happens, instead of wishing our entire lives that we are just somebody else, if we are growing in Christ and growing in his word, there will start to be, over time, there will start to be a comfortability. That if we are meditating on his word and delighting in, there is going to become a comfortability almost with what he has given us to where we might not have, we might not have what we desire, but we can look at a sunset and we can be like, God, I praise you for that. You've given me the ability to see that today. If that is you this morning, which I'm guessing it is because all, I mean, I'm talking to all of us. I would tell you this. How do you grow in this? Grow in intentional times of gratitude built into your life. Build those things into your life. When you see a sunset driving home, Thank God for that thing. When you come home and your dog's like wagging his tail, (laughs) like, be like, Lord, I thank you for this dog. Even though he crapped on the floor, I thank you for this dog. Like, he's great. Whenever you fill up at the gas station, thank the Lord for it. Build into your life intentional times of gratitude where you're constantly thanking him. And one of the things you will notice 
is that thankfulness and gratitude will begin to weed out discontentment in our lives. That's one of the things that you want to live a a content life in Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying this is going to be perfect. Build in times and ways and opportunities of gratitude that you will always do. Some of you guys know when I pull into the gas station, I pump my gas. I always carry a pen with me. One of the reasons I always carry a pen, if I go to the gas station, I get my receipt. I'm like, thank you, Lord, for this gas. You are my provider in every way, and I can trust that whatever I need, and I'll write a different thing every time. I'll fold it up. I'll stick it up here in my visor. What's that doing? That is putting in, putting into your life ways of gratitude and thankfulness that the Lord will use. Saul is waiting. So what will he do? Will he be disobedient? Or will he be obedient? Will he walk with God? Will he not? Let's keep reading. What does he say? We'll start in verse 8 again. He waited seven days. So Saul, he, he waited. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Uh-oh, losing his troops. ruh All right, so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me. And the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Samuel went out to meet and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, uh, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that, that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, uh, now the Philistines will, will come down against me at Gilgal and I, I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord, your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept the commandments of the Lord. Now pause. You might have just read that and you just might have been confused. You might have been like, I mean, what did he do? Like, he didn't kill nobody. Like, he didn't, like, what what are you talking about? What did he do wrong? Samuel apparently says this guy is doing something wrong. Like, I I, I don't get it. Okay, a little about 30-second background that will help you. In the Old Testament, God established pretty much three offices, all right? Three different offices. You could almost think of them as executive, legislative, and judicial. Not really. That's kind of the branches of our government, you see? So here's one of the things that we see. He had three different offices, really. One was a prophet, now, when we think of prophet, we think of like Pink Floyd tripping, like having visions. That is not what the prophets did. All right. Here's what they would do. They reminded people of their relationship with God. They taught people. They showed people that how they could better repent and follow God. They occasionally would offer sacrifices on behalf of people. And occasionally they predicted how God's future Messiah would change everything. So prophets, that's one. That's what Samuel is. Two, priests. They were the ones in charge of like the religious services in the Old Testament. So if you were in the temple or the tabernacle, those were your guys. They would also teach people. The last one, the king. This is pretty self-explanatory, right? Saul is this. He would rule over the people. He'd pass laws that coincide with helping the people better love their neighbor as themselves. As well as provide military and political leadership for the nation. So you see that, right? So these weren't designed to cross over. So what does Saul do? Remember, he is a king. And one of the things that God did separately, he said, I'm going to divide up these three things. So the king is not going to do the duties of the priest. The priest is not going to do the duties of the king. So Saul actually steps beyond his job description. Now, did Saul know this? You bet he did. After all, what was going on? The people were scattering. He wanted God's favor. So he's like, um, all right, I'm going to sacrifice. And then we're going to win this thing. 
Well, that's what he thought, right? Until who shows up? Look at verse 9. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished the offering, the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Remember, just like he said he would. He gave him seven days. He came on the seventh day. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, lie, and that the Philistines had mustered and that the Philistines had mustered a mash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me in Gilgal and I, I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Did you notice something really interesting about his reply? I think Hillsman's got this actually up on the screen. Um, let's see. Let me ask you. Take. A, I'm going to give you about 20 seconds of silence here. All right. I want you to see if you notice something about his reply up here. There is something absent from his reply. Don't say it out loud or anything like that. See if you can take probably the next 20 seconds. Read that and see what it is. So, uh, actually, uh, that's really bad divided up. So, um, yeah, read that slide. I'll give you 10 seconds on that slide, and then I'll give you 10 seconds on the next slide. Next slide, Hillsman. Oh, no, that's not it. Go back. Oh, that's unfortunate. Read it in your text real fast. As soon as he had finished, Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustard at Micmash. You have three subjects there in those three sentences. If you're an English person, all right? I'm not an English person either. Some of you are like, David, did you even go to school? Sometimes I wonder, all right? So... You have three subjects there. What were the three subjects? When I saw the Philistines come down against me. All right. When I saw that the people were scattering from me. When I saw that you had not come. What is Saul missing here? Do you notice he did not take responsibility for any of his actions at all? He did not take personal responsibility for any of it. This dude knows he did wrong. And he is incapable of taking personal responsibility for his own actions. Not only that, I love what he says. This, this is, this is amazing. This is totally you and I right here. Like this is totally us. Look what he says, even at the end of this, all right? Verse 12, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me in Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. Not only does he deny responsibility for the wrong that he's done, he actually twists it to say, hey, I've actually done the right thing here. I was reading uh, one author, and he talked about this. He talked about how, I don't know if you guys have ever gotten into like arguments with people before. But, like, if you do the thing like I do and you, like, rehash the argument in your head, like, so you just left, right? And now you're having the argument again. Like, notice, by the way, who always wins that argument whenever you do the replay? You do, right? Yeah. You're like, oh, I would hit him with that jab and hit him with that jab. And, like, yeah. Like, that's right. Like, and all of a sudden, if that, let's just say this. Let's say they had something against you. And all of a sudden you were like, oh, no, like, and you start talking back. No, like, the reason I'm doing this is because you're doing this. The reason I'm doing this is you're doing this. The reason I'm doing this is you're doing this. You start having that argument. Even if what you did was wrong, by the end of the time you're having that argument in your head, not only have you not done wrong, not only have you and I not done wrong, but what happens? We're like totally virtuous. 
we totally did the right thing. And if they just saw like our, our like like our motivations, and if they just saw like then then they would know. You can look down on Saul for this. Maybe you're new to Christianity. Maybe you're someone who's like, maybe you're someone who, maybe you're a guest today. Maybe whatever it is. And you come to the idea maybe that Christianity is this idea that you have a lot of good people like that are running around that do morally decent things. And one of the things that we actually believe is that we ourselves are completely and holistically self-centered in everything that we've done. That the good news is not that we're decent people and that God saved us. Is that every, the good news is this, is that we were all closet narcissists, constantly thinking about ourselves. And that God actually came down from heaven and rescued us. Here's what Saul did. Saul revealed this. He revealed how he really actually viewed God. This is probably the biggest problem with what he did. He thought that this is his idea. He thought, okay, I'm in trouble. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to offer this sacrifice and I'm going to make things okay. God will then like have favor on me. Let's just think about that for the second. If you're, if you go to a Chinese restaurant today, let's give you an example. Um, when you're checking out, when you're paying your bill, you're going to go up to the register. What do you typically see at a Chinese restaurant? It's a, it's a statue and you got some pennies and some change below. What is it? Do you know what it is? You rub the tummy of the, of the Buddha, right? That's right. You rub his tummy. That's why his tummy, like he might be a bronze statue, but his tummy's like real shiny because everybody rubs it, right? In every single other religion, gods have gods always have needs. They need to be fed. They need to be worshipped so that their ego can be struck, stroked. Just oh, yeah, yeah. Just scratch me right there. Oh, okay, great, great, great. And Saul is showing that his view of God is actually completely different. That the God of the Bible has no needs. He has zero needs. He, this is what this means. Maybe you came this morning with this idea in your head that maybe like I'll find favor with God because I'm attending or doing this. Here's the problem that you are in and the pickle that we are in, that God has no need. That nerdy theologians, if you're one of these, they call this the aseity of God. That Saul thought just by throwing this offering on the altar... That God would, you know, scratch the itch that he has. But the only problem we see is throughout the rest of the Bible, God shows that he's not like that. I think of, um, um, there's two little girls in this congregation who constantly give me stuff. Um, so Reagan and Becca. So they give me um, these little uh, pieces of, like, artwork, right? Like, they'll just bring them to me some days. Um, like, it's awesome. I love it. They'll give them to me, like, all the time. So, like, if you if you walked into my house, you'll see, um, like, all these artwork. There's a few more for you guys. They brought me. Ari's brought me some. Josie's got me some. Like, now here's the thing. Do those things have a lot of monetary value? Let me ask you. Do they? Are you going to sell a piece of, like, Reagan's artwork at, at, at a museum for like a million dollars. No, right? Do those have a lot of value to me? Yes, they do. And this is the mistake that, that Saul was making. Every time in the Old Testament God requires something of its people, it's not because God has a need and he sees that thing is valuable. That all the sacrifices were there. For one point. So that the people could demonstrate maybe the inward feelings of their heart through these sacrifices. And here's what Saul did. He made the mistake of thinking, oh, this isn't really about showing my devotion to God. This is about getting God to do what I want. And because of that, the Lord says, whatever you're trying here, 
I want nothing of it. Notice what he says. Look at verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. What what does Samuel say? He says, here's what God has done. Your kingdom would have lasted forever. What I've done is I've actually already found your replacement. And here's the thing. Notice how it describes him. I I find this pretty interesting. He will be a man after his, the Lord's, own heart. You might be like, David, what does that mean? Like, I, I don't get it. Like, what do you mean a man after his like, what is that all about? There's a couple different scenarios. Uh, one, I think most, a lot of people say, it just means that the Lord's going to pick them, which that could be true. I don't side with that one. Here's the interpretation I have. I think this is right. So let's just think about this for a second. Everything about Saul from the very beginning looks like a king. The text makes it very, very, very intentional ways of trying to show you this. He's the tallest He's the most handsome. He looks like a king. The people ask for his king, for a king. Do you remember what the people asked for? They say, we want a king just like all the other nations. Do you remember what Saul's name means? His name's a participle in Hebrew. And it means this. His name literally means the one you asked for. The people said, we want a king like all the other nations. And God says, I will give you exactly what you ask for. And here we see what God says is he's going to raise up another king who would what? Be a man after his own heart. Here's what I would think that would mean most likely. That he has, he loves the same thing that God loves the most. That God loves his own glory and fame the most and so will this man. That Saul was out for Saul at the end of the day. But the difference is that there would be a king who would come along who is out for God's glory. And for he would love God with all his heart. You know, this is true. And we're about to be introduced to this guy a couple chapters later. But it is even more true. Because like I said, we can sit back and hate on Saul all we want. We can hate on him and be like, how could he do this? The, all this is is a picture of you and I and every human king. And every person who gets power. Like this is, this is a picture of, of humanity. This is us. That even if you don't realize it, that you and I in many ways have spent our whole lives manipulating God or at least trying to. And you're like, no, I haven't. Let me ask you this. So maybe you're praying for something and then you maybe commit this big sin in your mind. What's the first thing that you naturally think of? Oh, now he's not going to give me this. Really? Think about that for a second. Does God deal with you based on your past? It shows no matter what we kind of do, we all, as human beings, we try to either manipulate him or ignore him, one of the two. And that there would finally be a king one day who would actually save us from both of these. And it would not be David. That friend, you and I have the same need as all our neighbors. That we need to be rescued by a king who would not be self-centered, but would actually live the life that we should have lived. That died the death that we deserved. And so that he would actually be in our place. And thankfully this king came. That Jesus Christ was the king that Saul never was. Where Saul sought to manipulate God like you and I did. Jesus Christ did that. He was God himself. And this is where we end today. Point three, a godly life cannot be truly godly without God's word. Let's look at verse 15. And Samuel arose and went up to Gilgal. 
The rest of the people went up to Saul to meet the army. They went up to Gilgal, to Gibeah, to Benjamin, a uh, Benjamin. And Saul numbered the troops who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present and stayed with Geba and Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. The raiders came out of the camp and the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Orpah, the other Shual. Another company turned towards Beth Horon. And another company turned towards the border that looks down on the valley of Zabim, toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords and spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel. And the plowshares and the mattocks a third of a shekel. For sharpening the axes, for setting the goats. So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, had, his son, had him. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Bigmash. You might be thinking, that's an odd way to end the story. And you would be right. One of the things it shows is the dire situation. So there were no blacksmiths that belonged to Saul. Here's what that means. Nobody in Israel could make swords. They had two swords. What was sacked against them was completely, I mean, they, they were completely outnumbered, which was ironic. God had saved these people over and over again in miraculous ways in the past. Saul knew none of his armies had swords. What made him think by sacrificing this? By actually slipping into disobedience that he would actually be delivered. God had delivered people all over the place before this. He had, he had heard about this. He had grown up hearing about this. And the worst thing of all, Samuel leaves. The person he was supposed to get God's word from to know what to do. And he continues on. He continues on like normal. Counts his men. Like, all right, guys, well, we got to do this. No mourning. No repentance. He thinks he can just carry on and carry on and we'll win this thing and God will do it, right? I think this is a reminder that our efforts always must be tied to something. That you can work hard, that you and I can work hard. Our efforts always have to be tied to actual obedience. This is tricky because, like, I was thinking about it this week. Um, I think we live in a community, if you if you think about this aspect since I've been here, I've been here about 10 years. And if one of the things you notice about our community, we have tons of strengths. Like, we have tons of gifts. We got tons of, like, so Friday nights, psh, man, we got better Friday nights than anybody else. Like, I love some South Georgia, Colquitt County football. Land. Dude, we got, we got, man, we got this, the Friday night thing down. Like, we do a lot of things good. We do farm. I mean, we have tons of talents. One of the drawbacks, one of the hard parts about our community, if you think about it, is that when it comes to spirituality, we think that everything that glitters is gold. It's almost like, it's almost like a dog with like a squirrel. That we live in a community that if any kind of spirituality is actually shown, it's automatically taken to be, this must be from God. And that this must be, like, this must be from God. It must be legit. It must be the real thing. It must be good. It must be, like, oh. and I'm thinking, really, though? I mean, Saul, he does a religious act here. You would think, like, like if you were just an outward looking at this, you'd be like, oh, he, he must be pleased of the Lord. And one of the things that I think we can see from this is everything that glitters is not gold. That there is a call for you and I and for our churches in this county, if you think about it. That we live in a very lost place. 
that your neighbors, that you're, you're in my neighbors. They, they, they might speak of God. They might talk about him at, at, at moments, but there's no obedience. There's no change in their life. There is no Christianity there. Even if, let's say, they were baptized, maybe when they were seven or something like that. I think this is a reminder of the job that you and I have before us. That the churches of our county, the job that is before us, that we at our very heart are evangelists, that people can actually operate in a world of like Christian, Christian ease, Christian ishness, and still be doomed. But brother and sisters, like Samuel, we are one of your and my jobs. We get to show people the beauty of who Christ really is. To leave behind this superficial godliness and embrace the God who is actually living, moving, working. And who's acted in human history. Like that is awesome. Saul tries to go on his life. Just doing his godly-ish stuff. When there's no godliness there. An encouragement to us, but also a warning to us as well. Lest we think that if we just do this godish things, that he is pleased. Remember, our obedience must always be tied to something. If your godliness is just doing things that you think God would like, let me suggest you that might not be a good idea. But our obedience must be tied to the word of God. To be truly godly, we must actually tie our actions to something, brothers and sisters. What can we take out of this today? Hmm. Wow. I mean, we can see, guys, our our desire for radical self-justification, just like Saul. One of the ways that God actually grows us is through the reproofs of others. Here's one way that maybe can be very helpful for you in that. Quick application point. If someone, and this comes from someone who's been, like, I've been reproved by many people in my life. If someone comes with a reproof against you, even if you have something against them in that moment, do not bring it up. Just listen. Take notes. Listen. And you might be saying, David, well, what if they're, what they're saying is only like 10%, 15% true? Then here's what's going to happen. When you go home and you put that before God, that 10%, 15% of you is going to change. Can you talk to them about stuff later? You totally can. But if you're, if you're in the process of that with somebody and someone wants to talk to you about things that you're doing wrong, be silent, listen, and write down. It will do much good to your soul. That because of Jesus, we can actually take personal responsibility for the things we've done wrong. While the world walks around and pretends like, you know what, they didn't do anything wrong. It's everybody else's fault. We're like, you know what, I'm pretty sure I do some horrible and wicked things and I need to change. But two, we also must come to God on his own terms, not our own. That we are to be people of the world and come to him constantly on his own terms. And that we are to point our community to that. I'll close with this. I remember um, talking to um, some of my friends. Their son was going, um, he's, he, he was going to have uh, gender transition surgery. Um, um, he was going to have uh, his body parts removed and uh, going to try to have um, a woman's body parts put on him instead. And um, I remember one of the things he said is he talked about how, um, God, if this is your will, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go kayaking one night, which if you've ever kayaked at night, that's literally suicide. Like that's a horrible idea um, because you can't see rocks and there's no lighting out there. There's literally no lighting out there. Um, he's like an expert kayaker. And he's like, God, if this is not your will, just kill me out there. And uh, I'll know that if it is your will, because if you don't kill me, then I, I survive. Uh, and then I can go ahead and do this. Uh, long story short, he survived. 
Um, so we went ahead and went ahead with the surgery. And um, because God must approve, right? And I was thinking about that. Because here's what he, he thought. He thought at the end of the day, okay, well, if, if God didn't kill me, then that means he must approve of this. Well, that's one option. It's a legitimate option. Okay, all right. But there's also another option. What if the other option is that God refuses to be your monkey? And jump when you say jump and sit when you say sit. Now, that's an entirely different option. It's so interesting because, like, we might see that as such an extreme example or something like that, which in some ways you could probably say that, like, you know, like it is. But you know what? Like, I think there's probably been times in our, all our lives where we have done stuff like that. I'm not saying we've done that. We've done stuff like that. When God actually seeks to make us wise through his word, we want to shortcut it. And say, hey, um, Lord, if this is your, then, then do this and do this and do this. Here's the thing. He wants to make you wise. To where when you get to situations, you know what to do. You know. He's already trained you. He's trained you in his word. That you might not, but when you get to the situation, you and I know. We'll know what to do. That like we talked about in the summer series, that God desires to make us wise, and he will. So to embrace him and his word. And not try to get him to come to us on our own terms. But we come to him on his own terms. That that is the life of repentance. Let me pray, guys. And what we'll do is we'll respond through song. Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.